Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome back to Kryptonite. I'm your host, Rich Goldberg. Let's get to our headlines. Tesla cashes out $936 million in Bitcoin after a year of crypto turbulence, tells us NPR. CNBC, fake crypto apps have stolen over $42 million from investors in under a year, warns the FBI. The LA Times, crypto-themed restaurant no longer accepts crypto payments. I remember the opposite story, maybe just a year ago. I think we may have even shared it here on the podcast a few months back. Three charged at first ever cryptocurrency insider trading tipping scheme. Former Coinbase employee allegedly tipped his brother and friend regarding crypto assets that were going to be listed on Coinbase exchanges. This is from the Justice Department. Big, big news of the last couple of weeks in case you weren't watching. Coindesk. Coinbase criticizes SEC for ineffective cryptocurrency regulations. The crypto exchange filed a petition to the commission, highlighting its complaints about the current regulatory framework. Barron's Bitcoin is soaring. Three signs the rally is real and 25% gains are ahead. Market wrap here from Coindesk. Bitcoin stalls at $23,000, but sits above cost for average investors' purchase price. Bitcoin investors are back in positive territory, although trading ranges have narrowed. And finally, from Coindesk, Bitcoin miner core scientific gets $100 million equity financing despite the bear market. And now let's get to our special guest, a national law journal, cryptocurrency, blockchain, and fintech trailblazer, a cited authority on virtual currency, lending, and fintech issues. Justin Steffen is a partner at Barack Ferrazano. He helps banks and fintechs navigate the legal and regulatory obstacles to innovation. Justin is also the founder and chair of the CBA's Financial and Emerging Technologies Committee and an adjunct professor at Northwestern Law School, where he teaches fintech and the law. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to set up our conversation for our listeners with a little bit of background. We have called crypto the wild west of policymaking here on the show because so much of it is still undefined. But we've also had uh, crypto entrepreneurs on the show a few weeks back. Alex Leishman from River Capital made the point that actually he's on the hook for a lot of existing laws and regulations already. So maybe sketch out for our audience, what does the current regulatory environment governing cryptocurrency and decentralized finance look like? What exists already what is still the open slate that's up for grabs? I would say, and to kind of parse from a, a, one of my favorite poets, that no regulator is an island. So no single regulator does it alone. And there's a lot of different applicable regulations. I get this question a lot from clients, and they'll say, well, who do I have to worry about? Worry about? Is it the SEC, the CFTC, the OCC, FDIC, fill in the blank. There's a lot more acronyms I could go down. And the answer is my favorite answer, which is yes. Right. So there's a lot of different right. laws in the, a lot the, of different the, the, areas. The classic, the classic lawyer response. Are, what you do and who you do it with. Right. But there is a lot of, a, a lot of regulation. So let's kind of parse that out. The SEC and the CFTC are the two most well-known, I think, regulators are the regulators that most. So I represent both kind of community banks, and also fintech companies. And uh, I love it. And I can tell you the difference really quickly in, in a, a clever anecdote, which is I know which type of my client is calling me because one, my crypto and fintech clients don't call me. 
they text me or they chat me on signal and they usually <laughs> lead with something like, Hey dude, uh, I'm still a dude to them. Um, but, uh, I like that, but that's how I know that I'm dealing with a FinTech client. My banks will call me usually on my work number and leave a message that says something along the lines of, you know, we'd like to talk to you about our strategic, you know, kind of plans for quarter two next year. Here's 10 dates in the next three weeks that work for us. Please pick one so we can start the discussion. So that's kind of the difference. So the banks understand that certain regulations apply to them. My, my crypto and fintech companies don't always, but they usually do know about the SEC and the CFTC. They've been the most active regulators. Obviously, the CFTC deals with commodities and futures and those sorts of products. The SEC deals with securities, but there's others, right? So you have the IRS, big one, right? We've seen more activity from them dating back to when they challenged, um, when they subpoenaed records from Coinbase, which I want to say was back in 16. You have parts of the treasury, right? Not just big treasury, but you have the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which most people refer to as FinCEN. They deal with enforcement of money laundering and money services businesses. You have the Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC. They deal with kind of big picture sanctioned entities and, and dealing with kind of terrorist financing and that sort of thing. I mentioned the banking regulators. Uh, maybe it's something that I see more than most because I deal with a lot of banks, but um, there are specific laws out there from the Office of Comptroller of Currency, from the FDIC, from others. So all of these entities, all of these regulators have a piece of the action. And that's federal. I haven't even gone into state. Um, that's the beauty of federalism. I don't know if you've gone into that on your show, but uh, 50 states, 50 state regulators sometimes. The most active in this space are the New York Department of Financial Services. You might have heard of the BIT license. They are the most prolific in terms of, uh, and often seen as the, very, as the most restrictive. On the other end of the spectrum, you get the Wyoming uh, Department of Banking, which is often seen as the most kind of crypto friendly. They've issued laws around DAOs, around special purpose depository institutions, which are really interesting, but they tend to be viewed as as pro-crypto, New York tends to be seen as more restrictive, but there's about 48 other states and other jurisdictions in there that also have views on how this works. And I'm not even going into the international, I'm not going to talk about the FCA or the European Union or others, but there's crypto is a international uh, international idea. This, it knows no geographic bounds. So sometimes you have to deal with other regulators as well. But, you know, so the landscape is you know, I'm not going to say hundreds, but probably hundreds of different regulators, all of which have their own views, all of which have their own products and their own concerns. So to go back to my initial answer, do you have to deal with all of them? Yes. You know, there's obviously this fundamental debate. We've talked about this a bit on, on the show. You touched on a little bit when you talked about the two main players in the CFTC uh, and and the SEC. And that is, is crypto a commodity or is it a security or is it both? Can you break that down for us a bit more as you see it from, from your vantage point as a lawyer uh, advising clients here, what are the legal implications of viewing it in the different, different lenses? Yeah. And I, and to answer your kind of more specific question, is it both? It can be. And it's, it's important, I think, to understand and appreciate why. Lewis Cohn is a, is a prominent uh, kind of crypto lawyer, and he likened it uh, on a podcast I was listening to, cryptocurrency, that is, to a medium, to a piece of paper, right? A piece of paper can be a promissory note. It can be the base for a work of art. It can be a lot of things, right? It's a nice simile to think of it that way. I like to think of crypto a little bit differently. I like to think of it like a person, right? And think about yourself. What are you? Uh, right now I'm a podcast guest, but I'm also a father. I'm an employee. I'm an employer. I'm a husband. I'm a son. I'm a friend. I'm a professor, uh, an adjunct professor, at least I'm a student. I take classes and, and learn from others. I'm a mentor and a mentee. All of these different facets of my existence of my life have different rules, have different expectations, right? Just because I'm a father doesn't mean I can't also be somebody's son. That's not true, right? They're not mutually exclusive. And I think cryptocurrency is much the same way. Just because it's a security doesn't mean it can also be a commodity. Doesn't mean that it can't also be property, right? I, I think that the big debate um, 
around who should regulate crypto is a is missing the point right i think that no one like i said regulators aren't an island just like people are an island not all cryptocurrencies are alike right some might be a security if you're using a token as a means to raise capital right that's the most common way to look at it and that generally speaking is often considered a security but the token itself can be you know something that people freely trade and is more viewed like a commodity which is what the cftc has said right they have said that eth and bitcoin are subject to their jurisdiction as well just because they might have originally especially eth were used in connection with an, with an initial coin offering and done to conduct to conduct fundraising they no longer are doing that purpose right You've heard the language sufficiently decentralized. It seems to indicate that a token can be one thing one day and another thing another. I don't actually think it works that way, but I do think, I do think that tokens aren't just necessarily one thing. They can be many things all at once. Depends on the token. People hate this lawyer answer, but it really depends. But that's why no single regulator, no single set of laws or, or regulations necessarily applies but it, you can't just say it's one thing. That's that's the long and short of it. So uh, I like the answer because I think that that's actually an honest answer. But we are in an environment, at least in Washington, where you have sort of two sides in a debate right now. And you see the cryptocurrency lobby pushing for legislation and regulation that yep. would put them squarely under the Commodity Future Trading Commission, CFTC. And yeah. the crypto skeptics crowd, maybe Gary Gensler himself, you know, sort of see the SEC being being the, the top watchdog here. I guess the question would be, what does the cryptocurrency industry not want to see happen that they want the CFTC in charge? What does the SEC bring that the, that CFTC does not bring? I would say my speculation as to why some prefer the CFTC as opposed to the SEC deals with the practical distinction as opposed to a real distinction. So many people view the CFTC as being more pro-crypto, just like many people view Wyoming as more pro-crypto than New York. Okay, why is that? Well, generally speaking, and it varies by commissioner, and that applies both on the SEC level and the CFTC level, but some CFTC commissioners think current commissioner FAM or former commissioners like Heath Tarbett would be more open to engage with the industry. I remember hearing that Coinbase had asked uh, current chairman Gensler for a meeting and he said no. Okay, so I think the perception is the CFTC is more open to engage with crypto and therefore might be a better lead regulator. Now, I, I want to put a little bit of brakes on the idea that, you know, some of the recent legislation is designed to kind of preempt the SEC, because I don't think that's exactly what it does. So look at the, the most people will cite um, the Lummins Hildebrand legislation that was, I, I want to say a few months ago. Was put yeah, in. yeah, very recently, Senator Lummis uh, from Wyoming, Wyoming being a very pro-crypto state, yep. uh, and, uh, and Senator Gillibrand from New York, a, a Republican and Democrat teaming up. Yeah, talk to us about that legislation. We, we, we've, we've noticed it in the right. headlines. We haven't gone deep on what that legislation would do. Yeah. And so there's a couple of things that it does, but one of them is try to create a clear boundary for when the SEC is to look at something and when the SEC has purview and when the CFTC is more appropriate to regulate. So it doesn't exclude the SEC. It just has kind of a predetermined, defined role. And, I, and it's in Title III of the legislation, but it talks about um, a quote-unquote ancillary asset. Right. So basically what what the what the drafters are trying to do is distinguish between what I talked about before fundraising activity. Right. Uh, and non fundraising activity. So once the funds are already kind of been raised and the tokens are being freely traded, that is kind of in the CFTC land. The initial fundraise, however, that kind of issuing a token in order to fund a project is still within the purview of the SEC. It does a couple of things to kind of draw those distinctions. There's thresholds about how much it has to actively trade, um, and it kind of envisions, you know, kind of tokens that frequently trade at around five million on average daily basis. That's a lot. Most token projects don't actively trade like that, and that where the sponsor is still involved. This is the sufficient decentralization topic, right? And this is pr in practice and in in 
in, I guess, in this legislation, a very fundamental distinction, which is there's a, always a battle between, uh, over control. Can I control this token? Can I control this ecosystem? Can I get the money out of it? That's what founders and token issuers often want. But at the same time, if they do that, they are now exerting their managerial efforts, right? That's the that's the the legalese there, and they are now subject to potential securities regulations. So there is people will walk that line, and that's kind of what this act talks about. If the sponsor is still doing that, it looks more like a security, and there's way and there's going to be disclosure requirements around it, right? I think what that particular act does is tries to draw those lines, those neat little lines, which is hard to do. And, but also provide for kind of enhanced disclosure, but also enhanced understanding. So there's some language in there about how if the SEC doesn't take action against a certain project, it's presumed to be okay, right? And I think this goes to what a lot of the industry folks have concern over, which is how- Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How do I know that I'm not going to get slammed two years from now when the SEC gets around to looking at my project? I, I want to be comfortable. I want to be clear. There's not a way for me to go seek a no action letter. I, I guess I could seek a registration. I could go under an exemption, but I don't want to have this specter hanging over me. And I think that's one of the things that the bill does. The bill also talks about DAOs and deals with the taxation status of those. That's not as, as critical here. And it deals a little bit with stable coins and how to regulate stable coins, at least asset-backed stable coins, which are distinct from algorithmic stable coins. Um, I think it only deals with the asset-backed ones. It doesn't seem to cast dispersions on the others. Some people have suggested that it does. But asset-backed uh, stable coins, it talks a little bit about too. But that's generally what the bill, I think, is designed to do. Not wrest total authority away from the SEC but to more clearly delineate when the SEC should be involved and when the CFTC should be involved. Now, before I end this answer, because I like long-winded answers, again, professorial, it's hard to, when people let me just randomly talk at them, but in practice, I also think that it's important to understand that there's not much of a difference in, in, in application, right? I think generally speaking, people think the CFTC is more friendly and more open but that doesn't mean that what they've done to regulate crypto companies is very different from the SEC, right? The SEC, I think, has been a little bit more prolific, but both the CFTC and the SEC have done two things. They've issued generic guidance that may help and may not help, depends on who you're talking to. But they've also initiated a bunch of enforcement actions, basically to root out fraudsters and to ensure compliance with registration requirements, right? This is this consumer protection function that both agencies are serving. And, you know, I could show you side by side, you know, Munchie versus the CFTC enforcement action, they don't often look that different, right? They're both going after people that are misbehaving, the bad people, right? And they're trying to root that out. So on a practical level, CFTC or SEC, they kind of do similar things. So to kind of summarize, the bill doesn't eliminate the SEC. It just kind of changes the roles and when the SEC is involved and when the CFTC is involved. 
We had a guest on recently, uh, leading crypto skeptic, uh, Dr. Nicholas Weaver. You've probably seen some of some of his quotes on, you know, all crypto should should burn and fire. Uh, one of his core arguments was that crypto is essentially a Ponzi scheme right now, and that many of the coins yeah. out there should be or could be prosecuted for securities fraud. Do you do you believe that there are security fraud concerns out there that the SEC could be acting on today that that, that they are not? Um, are we seeing some of that evidence in some of these collapses as the market is is, is turning down? Yes and no. I, obviously, and I think the SEC has announced that they're bolstering their enforcement division. I can't remember if the number was you know fifty or or what, but they're devoting considerable more resources to basically root this out. I, I don't think you know their lack. One, we'll never know how many active active investigations are ongoing until they, you know, make their way through the process and end in consent orders and and the like, right? So the scope of the SEC or the CFTC's kind of activity is to an extent unknown, but I don't think we should view their action or inaction as anything other than a lack of information. As to whether crypto is a Ponzi, I've heard the argument. I think some are. Right, and I think the SEC has actually and CFTC have actually said so uh, as related to certain cryptos. But I don't think that's an accurate way to describe all cryptocurrency. It's hard to paint with that broad of a brush. Really, crypto is a lot of things, but it's really an experiment in decentralized trust. Right? It can be a Ponzi scheme, the same way that if I buy a Mickey Mantle baseball card today and I sell it to you, and then the price of baseball cards goes to nothing, it might look like a Ponzi scheme then too or the US dollar could collapse or the Argentine peso or whatever. Everything could be a Ponzi, depends on when you get in and when you get out, right? But I think there's clear differences between most cryptocurrencies and how a Ponzi scheme actually operates. Generally speaking, if we're just kind of taking on new investors to pay the old ones, that looks more like Ponzi. If there's some sort of actual uh, value in the underlying technology, which I think we see with a lot of projects, you know, think shared file space, think, smart contracting. There's something else there, and it, it shouldn't be equated with a, a base Ponzi scheme. That said, whether it's cryptocurrency or traditional trading or anything else, scammers going to scam, right? It happens. Not everybody's motives are pure. Bad stuff happens. That doesn't mean that we should kind of cast aside the entire industry and that it has no value. But yeah, sure. Bad people operate in the space and have, although it's probably far less pervasive. We had an investor a few episodes ago, Michael Green, uh, former portfolio manager for Teal. He claimed that no one has been able to get a true audit, a genuine audit of a cryptocurrency the way you would think of in a major corporation that was SEC regulated. Uh, how does auditing work for crypto today? And would that become more challenging if the SEC somehow stepped in and demanded more? Yeah, and it depends on the type of cryptocurrency. It's hard to, again, not everyone is the same. Generally speaking, where I hear audits getting the most kind of traction or the most uh, vociferous kind of uh, rallying for audited or audited financials and attestations is around asset-backed stable coins. Okay, and if we look at uh, kind of the Terra Luna collapse. Um, might, somebody might say, well, we should have had an audit there. Well, audit wouldn't have helped because that's not how Terra operated. Terra was algorithmically backed, not asset backed. Other projects think Tether, which is purportedly asset backed, have had a lot of concerns around whether the whether there is an attestation that can be relied on and audited by an independent third party that the assets are actually there, right? So there's there's a difference. But I do think around stablecoins, you've heard people, you've that's part of the Gildebrand uh, Lumens bill, and it's part of like the NYDFS guidance to their regulated entities on stablecoins. There needs to be over collateralization. There needs to be regular attestation that the money that's there to secure the coins is actually there. So I think that is a likely control that will be imposed on that type of coin. On something like Bitcoin or something that's kind of a, uh, you know, a public non-permission token, I don't know how exactly you audit that. The blockchain, in a, in a lot of ways, is an audit tool. Um, you can see all the coins that were issued, which public addresses hold them, yada, yada, yada. It's not really subject to kind of reserve requirements or things like that. That's not how it works. So it depends on what we're talking about. Stable coins, it makes sense. Or certain types of stable coins, it makes sense. 
not all cryptos are auditable and not all cryptos are able to know every person who owns it and, and so on and so forth. That's why intermediaries exist. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the short answer. So maybe. Moving down Pennsylvania Avenue uh, to the White House, obviously the president uh, now many weeks ago putting out his own executive mm -hmm. order, uh, directing, directing a wide range of departments and agencies to develop policies on crypto, both on the domestic policy basis and, and a national security policy basis. What are you watching for there? What do you expect to see uh, come back uh, from that executive order? Yeah, it's interesting. People made a lot uh, of hay around the executive order when it came out, and it didn't really move mountains for me. Not because I don't think it was well-intentioned, not because I don't think it was well-written, not because I don't think it was proper. I think that the chief executive's role is to kind of create policy directives, uh, identify key things that, you know, this administration wants to see. That's the way it is. But that's not to say that there's any sort of real actionable takeaway there. Let's look at the different kind of component pieces, and that might explain what I'm talking about. So, uh, you know, the first thing is protect U.S. investors, right? Well, that's already really happening, right? There's a lot of actions around that. Could that happen more, like you, like you asked? Perhaps, sure. Um, it could happen more, but I don't see, particularly when products are retail facing, a dearth of protection. I see a base level of protection that is actually quite robust and especially relative to the total size of this ecosystem. And I see that continually increasing. There's a lot of tools. There's also kind of private rights of action that do somewhat cabin this, but that already exists. I think one of the more interesting pieces or two of the more interesting pieces, one was kind of a question around financial stability and uh, systemic risk, right? It, it, it particularly calls on the on FSOC, uh, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, to identify, you know, potential risks. And this is something that we've seen, the word contagion has come up a lot in recent weeks, you know, something along the lines of, well, Terra Luna you know, it's collapsed and it's de-pegging is a contagion that's filtered to Celsius and to the uh, hedge funds that have collapsed. And that's, you know, this is really impacting a lot of people. Um, no, that's not exactly true. Um, let's, let's put it in perspective. So FSA, um, you know, the Financial Stability Oversight Council is a product of Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank is kind of a reaction to the subprime crisis. That's something I'm very well familiar with. I litigated the fall of the subprime crisis for about a decade, okay? The subprime crisis impact was in the uh, multiples of trillions, tens of trillions of dollars, right? You have 19 trillion in um, household wealth gone. You have 7 trillion in home values evaporate. You have 8 million jobs lost. You have all these huge numbers, right? The reason why that was such a, a kind of a watershed issue across markets and across geographies was because of the pervasive nature of collateralized debt obligations and asset-backed securities. They were in your pension fund. They were in your retirement account. They were everywhere. Crypto's not like that, right? The total market cap for all crypto is about a trillion bucks, give or take, depending on the day, probably a little bit less now than it was yesterday, but probably uh, more than it was three years ago right? That's not huge, okay? That's really not. On a grand scheme of things, that's not huge. That's a factor of 20 less than the total amount of, law, of loss in the you know, financial crisis, okay? And that's if it went to zero tomorrow. That's one, one trillion total market cap. What, 13% of people have crypto? The average is about a thousand bucks of crypto. Most people, not everybody, can afford to lose a thousand bucks, okay? This isn't going to have the same kind of widespread risk of, you know, invading traditional markets. I think um, acting comptroller Sue said the same thing. He said, this doesn't have broader effects in traditional financial systems, right? That's not to say that it's not important. That's not to say that it couldn't become this, but it doesn't have, and when I say it, I mean cryptocurrencies writ large, they don't have the same pervasiveness throughout the financial system that would be needed to pose systemic financial risk, right? If I lose a thousand bucks, I'm pretty pissed off, but I'm not losing my house, okay? That's a big difference. It's a big change. So, you know, if 13% of the country has it, and by the way, they have a small amount, most people aren't doing things like staking cryptocurrencies to earn yield. 
They're not yield farming. They're not lending. They're not doing this. They're not starting hedge funds. These tend to be a very small set of people. That doesn't mean that they don't deserve protection as well, but it's not going to have that global effect, right? Much more likely that things like inflation will have a global effect as opposed to cryptocurrencies at this moment. Okay, so that's one thing I would point out. The other thing that kind of stood out to me in that order, it talks about stable coins and it talks about kind of a need for or need to explore a digital dollar. Um, and this is something I've written a lot about more in the privacy aspects of a digital dollar, but it's something I'm really interested by, partially because I don't understand it completely. I'm not an economist. I'm a lawyer. We have asked every guest to help explain it to us and we get close. We get close. It, yeah. Everybody, It's something different to everybody. <laughs> yes. And this is the thing. And I'll say where I, I will confess where I am ignorant. I do not understand the argument that having a digital dollar is somehow critical for the hegemony of the U.S. dollar vis-a-vis uh, -vis other currencies, think the Chinese digital yuan, and somehow we will fall behind because our form of currency is not somehow in a token. I don't necessarily appreciate or understand that. I'd be more than thrilled for somebody to explain it to me. I've listened to people from the Fed talk. I love hearing them speak. I still don't get it. Uh, and maybe it's just because I'm too uh, too dumb. So I will confess that. But I think that the idea of a stable coin and the kind of purported benefits are a bit overstated. And there's a lot of significant deterrence that I think need to be fleshed out more than a one line in a paper. So usually when you look at the digital dollar project, which are very smart people doing really great things, and I'm not criticizing them in any way, shape or form. I'm just saying I note that in their proposals, they say things like privacy need to be considered. Okay, well, maybe it's because I'm a lawyer, maybe because I'm a sometimes privacy lawyer. That's a little bit more significant than something we need to consider and reconcile. That's going to be really hard and difficult to deal with. When you look at, uh, to kind of get to your earlier question of the regulatory tenor of things, we see a desire for more information, for more transparency and less opacity. And that is consistent. Okay, but that's not consistent with general privacy rights. If I pay $20 to my bookie, I'm not saying that I do that. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. Just saying, you don't know that I'm doing that unless you're monitoring me and you put up a warrant to make sure that Justin is not illegally gambling, right? Um, that is possible if you can monitor every transaction throughout all of time because let's say the US Fed issued a digital dollar and controls the ledger. So they know exactly who you sent it to. They might know that gentleman, uh, I'll call him Terry, not a real person, just telling a story, is a bookie, but they will know that I paid Terry $20 on a certain day. They will know that I donated money to a Republican or a Democrat. They will know that I funded a militia organization that might have ties to, you know, I don't do any of this, but I'm saying this is the kind of, this is kind of the transparency that will cause an evisceration of privacy. I think that's problematic. But to the benefits, the purported benefits, I think they're a little bit overstated. One of which, the one that always gets me and I don't understand is financial inclusion. How is a digital dollar or any sort of cryptocurrency going to facilitate financial inclusion? I always laugh when I look at, for my venture clients or my private equity clients, projects that purport to you know, be a solution to financial inclusion. How? The answer or the rationale is, well, all you need is a cell phone for cryptocurrency. That's not actually true, number one. You need a bank account. That hasn't changed because we're dealing in cryptocurrency. Yes, you can do peer-to-peer -peer exchanges, but if you ever want to exit that ecosystem, you still need an off-ramp. And most likely, unless you're dealing with a very shady one, you need a bank account and you need to be verified and you need to be vetted. Okay, that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed at all counter to that, let's say, let's talk about a digital dollar, a US digital dollar. How is that going to bank the underbanked? Who is going to control the digital dollar? Do you think the Fed is going to monitor every transaction? The Fed is going to create digital wallets for you? No. They will probably make their member banks do it. Wait, now banks are issuing digital wallets, much like banks assign bank accounts. How is that any different? They still have to do their onboarding and their due diligence to make sure that you're not a ne'er-do-well and you are who you say you are, unless we're going to totally eliminate that, which I cannot imagine. So this is no different than what the current system is set up to do. Uh, only now, not only do you have to have a digital bank account probably issued by a Fed member bank, but you also probably have to have an expensive cell phone that's a smartphone. 
Uh, now that's what? Um, what's an iPhone cost? Nine hundred bucks. Big deal going on, I think, right now uh, for trade-ins on Verizon. Um, I don't work for them. They don't. Yeah. They don't do ads here yet. But sure. if, if they'd like to, I mean, we're all, we're open to it. But uh, listen, I hear exactly what you're saying. I I have the same feeling. Somebody is going to make a lot of money off the infrastructure behind it, almost likely, and that's probably what oh. where the proponents are. Uh, are, are coming from. Uh, I do have a related question, and that is, um, we've talked a lot on the show in the context of illicit finance and money laundering, and you have a lot of experience in AML uh, KYC issues on the on the lending side. We we see techniques uh, coming into use like uh, coin joining and mixing, and, and there's a lot of concerns there. The 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 whole concept of a pseudonymous, you know, type transaction environment and what that means uh, when you say we're KYC compliant, like what does that even actually yeah. mean uh, in yeah, a crypto right. environment? How, how do you sort of look at uh, uh, what a robust, effective AML anti-money laundering mm-hmm. regime could actually be that is enforced, that has mechanisms that we could feel comfortable in within the cryptocurrency realm? Yeah. And again, you know, to give my favorite answer of it depends, it does depend a little bit on what you're dealing with and who you're dealing with. So let me take give you two examples. Let's say you are a community bank. Yes, you are a community bank who has been approached by one of these, I will call them in pejoratively sub custodians. These are crypto company wallet services exchange type companies that are going to empower you community bank to uh, let your customers purchase. I'm using air quotes if you because there's no video here, but I'm using air quotes, purchase cryptocurrency and hold it at the bank. Okay. In this scenario, what are the real risks? What is the AML required at the bank level? Well, number one, the person that the uh, your customers are quote unquote purchasing cryptocurrency from are most likely one of these subcustodians who is doing this off chain. So the subcustodian who's probably most likely a regulated entity, either through a uh, national trust charter or a special purpose depository institution in certain states, oftentimes New York or Wyoming, um, they are regulated. They are known. They are not scammy. They are on the up and up, at least according to the chartering authorities, right? They are selling it to you. You are a vetted, approved bank customer who is known. This doesn't pose significant additional AML risks. So you're not interacting in a peer-to-peer manner in a, with pseudonymous individuals on chain. Now, that is a very vanilla type situation. Should the you know should there be additional controls as to the custody of those assets? Yes, and there presumably are, and there's best practices, and there's all sorts of fun stuff there. But from an AML and onboarding diligence perspective not that complicated, not that difficult. Presumably the people that are purchasing this have already been onboarded by the bank already. Otherwise they wouldn't be getting this service. So something like that, not scary. What about the far other end of the spectrum? Let's talk about a decentralized finance exchange. I'll shorthand decentralized finance as a kind of algorithmic, uh, you know, uh, applications, right? It could be a decentralized lender. It could be a decentralized exchange, which is just a matching algorithm. It could be a lot of different things, but it's a piece of code. Okay. How's a piece of code going to ensure that uh, Justin, let's say Justin, that's me, comes on and is actually Justin and is not some sort of scammy uh, sanctioned entity that should not be allowed to traffic in cryptocurrencies? Um, well, that's a little bit trickier. Okay, there's solutions for it. They typically are software solutions. You've seen companies, and I don't represent or endorse any particular company. I just think they're interesting. Something like Barata, which are kind of passportable identity verification tools. Something that you could use in a DeFi ecosystem to kind of gate people in and out. Ave does something similar. Again, not an endorsement, but they have this kind of, um, you know, kind of. I wouldn't call it a walled garden, but they have a KYC function for a decentralized application, right? You see that kind of coming into play, but they still can do it. Um, oftentimes it has to be, like I said, a gating tool, something that you do up front. You cannot participate in this decentralized application, this decentralized exchange until you are pre-vetted and pre-cleared. That's usually how you see people do it. That's not how everybody does it. I'm not going to say who doesn't, but that's a good solution to do it. So it depends a lot. Now there's other things you had mentioned money laundering. 
So two parts of the BSA, if you're not familiar with it, one part is kind of the KYC, know your customer, KYB, know your business, CDD, customer due diligence. I like a lot of acronyms, but that's one half. The other half is actively monitoring transactions to make sure people aren't laundering cash. That can be tricky, especially in a peer-to-peer -peer exchange. Uh, as you point out, Rich, people do uh, use crypto and they use mixers and they use tumblers and they use um, privacy coins too you know, obscure movements of money, they'll run peels to basically get money out. Okay, that happens. How do you prevent that? Well, again, for regulated entities, what you'll do is if you're dealing with those peer-to-peer -peer type exchanges, you're going to do something like you probably hire an on-chain forensics tool to make sure you know a little bit more about the people that are doing it, right? That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to look at the flags that have already been laid out, right? FinCEN did a good job. There was a 2019 memorandum, I call it the AO3. I don't know if that's the right way to refer to it or not, but it's a piece of guidance around certain crypto specific red flags you should be looking for. I usually will point people to that as a starting point. Now they don't always apply to you. It might not be something you'll be able to see, but at least it gives you a sense for the kinds of things you could look for as a crypto uh, red flag for money laundering, right? Because it's not gonna always appear the same way in crypto as it will in traditional kind of money movement, right? I'm not going to send always $9,999 of crypto. One, because a lot of crypto exchanges don't have kind of those CTR type transactions. It's not subject to that, right? But that's the kind of thing that I think you have to be cognizant of. There is guidance out there. It, it doesn't address every situation, but it's a good place to start. We obviously had the uh, the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, also a couple of years right. ago, um, uh, providing some guidance on enforcing yeah. the travel rule for cryptocurrency. Yeah. Uh, our last guest, uh, I, I asked him, he was very critical uh, of cryptocurrency, and I said, if you had the top thing you would you would ask for, what is the number one, you know, regulation that you're really pushing for? He said, enforce the travel rule to to its maximum. Maybe just for, for our listeners, explain yeah. the travel rule a little bit. Explain maybe differences in how the travel rule is applied to banks versus cryptocurrency today. I know Switzerland goes a little bit further than we, than we do, yeah. uh, what they require for wallets, et cetera. Maybe just talk about that. And, and, and would that be an effective solution? I'd have to brush up a little bit more to speak more coherently or cogently on it. But generally speaking, the travel rule deals with when certain transactions have to be reported. I always think about it like if I brought $3,000, I can't remember what the actual threshold is. I want to say $3,000. But if I brought $3,000 in cash in with, you know, into the United States, would that have to be reported? It's the same way applied in a digital sense, right? So if somebody brings in to an exchange, let's call it Coinbase or Kraken or something, they bring money in from a private wallet that hasn't been onboarded or vetted, does that have to be reported? That's kind of the basic functionality of the travel rule is reporting movements of unknown assets into a regulated entity, okay? That's generally how it works. Um, I think that you've seen a lot of pushback from those regulated entities because compliance would be very difficult, right? Um, that is true. Uh, would it really help, I guess, is the better question. And I'm not maligning anybody and I don't know exactly all the different uh, you know, kind of tools that somebody like FinCEN, for instance, would use. But I suspect they have a lot of information already on these things. What does it give you, right? What does it do, aside from being, let's call it regulation theater, right? And I'm not, again, maligning any regulatory agency or thing like that, you know, but when you go through the, um, the checkpoints through TSA, is that actually preventing an attack or is it giving us the sense of security that we are all safe? I would equate things like the travel rule as more regulatory theater, because in practice, I don't see all that information actually being all that useful. FinCEN already has thousands and hundreds of thousands of transactions, millions of transactions being reported to them on a daily basis. What do they do with it? Okay, can they actively compute all of the necessary uh, ramifications and permutations and insights that are being offered to them through that data? I don't think that's really realistic for them or fair to impose on them. So what does more data give you? Okay, what does more insight give you? And that's what I would ask for. Are we just doing it as a, as a perfunctory function because now it makes it a little bit more painful and now only kind of people that have the cash and acumen will, will be able to do this? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? It cuts both ways. It, I think, creates a kind of... Um, first mover or early mover advantage, it creates a well-capitalized advantage. So now somebody like Coinbase is going to have the leg up on anybody who thinks that they could create their own crypto exchange. Maybe that's good. Maybe it's not. Um, don't know. 
Um, but I don't necessarily think information for information's sake is all that useful. If you have an active plan, I'll give you an example, another kind of national security example. Look at something like the specifically designated nationals list, the OFAC list, right? Or it's not just the OFAC list. It's put out there by uh, OFAC. It's one of the sanctions lists. It is probably the most famous, right? It'll have wallet addresses. It'll have individuals' names. It'll have prescript or you know prescribe you from doing business with people in certain countries. How do you prevent that? Right? That's a piece of information. You're getting all this information and you're dealing with cryptocurrency transactions. How do you actually prevent that? How do you know that a wallet address that's not on the list is actually owned by a North Korean national? Do you know that? Is that reasonable to ask? Or are you just running a check against the list? You're just running a check against the list most times. For sure. Right. For sure. It, and, and I, I guess for a layman looking at this, it seems like in banking, I'm more reassured by the information you're getting and the ability to demand information from the client who is publicly known to you and yes. track their transactions than in the crypto space when doing this. Yes. So, so how yes. do you sort of overcome that sort of structural challenge? Yeah. Um, and if I had a great answer for that, I'm sure I'd be far <laughs> richer and not a lawyer for that. Um, We'll leave that to the CIA, I'm sure. I think that, that that's what they're working on. So, and, and again, if I were able to solve all the world's problems, perhaps I would be doing something different. I don't think that information is necessarily bad, but I think certain information is more useful than others, right? So by virtue of people on, on you know, though, so let me give you the example of the travel rule application, right? Somebody who is bringing money into an exchange from an outside source. Now, number one, they're already being, they've already been identified. They've already gone through due diligence. People or companies like Coinbase, like Kraken, uh, any exchange really that's operating domestically, they will do those due diligence checks because they act like a regulated uh, financial entity. So they know who you are. The only additional piece of information that they are gleaning is that you had $3,000 somewhere else. Okay. Does that make you any more or less likely to be laundering money to be doing terrorist financing? Not really, not in my mind. I don't, Maybe you could draw some conclusions from that evidence if you had additional evidence. True. But I think to your point, the better checks, right, are knowing who you're doing business with. I think that KYC element of the, uh, you know, the Bank Secrecy Act is much more prescient here, right? If I know that it's, you know, Justin, who's a middle-aged lawyer in Chicago, you know, probably a pretty low risk. Now, if I know that I am a international money transmitter that deals with, uh, let's say, I don't know, government uh, entities and government organizations in very difficult areas of the world. Ooh, that's a lot riskier now, isn't it? I, I think knowing who you're doing business with is important. That's also why. So when we look at kind of these, these mixers and tumblers and you say, well, people are running things through mixers and tumblers. Yeah, but you're missing the last step, which is you have to get it out. Okay. You know, I can get into a bank. If I can't get the money out, I didn't really have a successful robbery now, did I? So how do I get the money out? Well, you have to get it out through another intermediary. Now, there's a lot of international uh, entities, companies that may not have the same uh, kind of full-throated AML KYC type requirements. They might not even look. They might not even check. That is where, uh, that is what's facilitating that. It's not necessarily the mixers and the tumblers. Those are kind of to allow them time to get it to that place where they can exit out, right? And then, you know, let's say I'm not, I don't know if this is true, but let's say somebody like Binance could say, well, I don't, I don't know. I didn't see that coming in. So I didn't know that it was bad and I don't prevent people from taking it out on my exchange, right? Um, but you, that's why it's important if you were to deal with a transaction solely amongst regulated entities within a country. If you could you know, prescribe it that way, it's gonna be really hard to launder money there because you know who everybody is and you know what they're doing, what they're moving. And if you have the right risk controls, you can prevent that from happening. It's when we move it outside to an entity that doesn't necessarily do that or doesn't necessarily care, that's where it becomes problematic. So I don't see the, the things like the travel rule 
fixing that. Guard guard the on-ramps and the off-ramps. That's all regulatory. My last regulatory question for you, and then we'll let you go. We've had you a while. Uh, Bloomberg News, the U.S. Labor Department considering a possible rule over whether cryptocurrencies should be offered as an option for 401k plans, uh, which may further escalate the department's dispute with retirement plan providers over such investment options. House Ways and Means Committee Chair Richard Neal asked a federal watchdog to scrutinize the practice of retirement savings programs offering cryptocurrency investments, end quote. I don't know if you're watching this debate at all. You brought it up in sort of the the, uh, the use cases yeah. previously of what would mainstream this more. Uh, any views on, on where that might be going out of uh, Department of Labor? It, it does make me nervous. And, you know, like regulators, I guess I'm risk adverse. Again, that's probably why I'm a lawyer. And it, it's not just because the expansion into things like, you know, retirement accounts could be make it more likely to have a systemic risk. It's from a practical level right? How is somebody who's a fiduciary who's managing a retirement account supposed to account for and manage those assets, right? Are there qualified custodians out there who are going to exercise your governance rights that are attendant with a token, that are going to vet the token project and understand what's a good investment versus a bad investment? This isn't going to be the next Terra, right? How do you know? Right? Are there enough professionals in the world who know this stuff that can enable retirement accounts and people like that to do it? I don't know. I honestly don't. I suspect that there's not. But there's a difference between investing in traditional assets and investing in crypto. If the world understood the difference, I suppose we would probably have far fewer uh, cyber attacks. We'd probably have far fewer uh, you know, projects that go bust because nobody would invest in them. There's always risk. The volatility of certain cryptocurrencies, um, you know, the the additional steps required to secure them, to exercise the rights attendant with them, the policies that will be needed. And I love it, by the way, because if you did that, you would need a lot more lawyers. So maybe I'm, you know, cutting off or cut, what is it cutting off my nose to spite my face? But I, I don't think that it's really all that feasible. And I think you would, I don't even know how to build the rules around it, right? Uh, I'd be happy to try, but safeguarding those assets, custody is going to be a piece of it. How do you get, for instance, best execution on a crypto trade? How is that even possible? Can you do it? How do you get the best price, right? There is no one price. You would have to have basically a feed into everybody who sells it, every over-the-counter desk, every exchange, everywhere to know that you're going to get the best price for it. Is that really feasible? Is that really possible at this stage? If you don't get the best price, did the person who's acquiring this on behalf of their retirement account breach its, his or her or its fiduciary duty? That's a really weighty question that I don't think people want to get into. Um, be happy to get into it, but I think that's the problem is that you need a lot more insight into how that would be done and how that would be done reasonably, prudently, and responsibly. And I think you probably need more third parties that can facilitate it, whether it's a crypto uh, custodian, whether it's a uh, kind of a uh, information reporting service, what you're going to need more bones to build that uh, kind of ecosystem than what exists. I wouldn't just kind of let it start. I think that's risky. Justin Seven, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you. I think our listeners have been clamoring for the meat uh, that that we need to put on the bones as far as what the regulations actually are or could be. Uh, I think this this goes a long way. Thanks for joining us. Yep. Thanks for having me. Uh, another great episode in the books. If you like our show, please help us get the word out. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a five star review, and most importantly, tell your friends and family because that's the best recommendation we will ever get. Until next time, I'm Rich Goldberg. This is Kryptonite. Oh,